You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? God, I say God. How do you like that? This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield.
My guest is Dave Nadelberg. He's a writer, producer, and creator of Mortified, a grassroots storytelling project where adults get up on stage and share embarrassing diaries and other things they created as kids. No matter who we were as kids, whether we were the bully or the captain of the football team or the nerd, we all went through the same pains and struggles. If you've got something that you feel like you would kill yourself if people found out, there's no way you can hold on to that. People were a little bit shocked, like, you're going to read your diary out loud? Why would you want to do that? But the people that don't want to do it love hearing other people do it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mortify. Dear Diary. Is it true that girls don't have orgasms the first time? I just put down my Anne Frank diary. I can really relate to her struggle. Just be yourself, be real, look out into the audience. Every person has something in a shoebox in their closet that is embarrassing and raw from their childhood. That relationship between the performer and the audience is the heart of Mortified. How are you feeling? Totally nervous. (laughs) To take what was once your shame and own it and laugh at it, it's essentially the very nature of what Mortified is about. Where did the idea come from for you? So Mortified began because I wrote, I found, I should say, a love letter that I had written to a girl when I was in high school, and she was also in high school. That always weirds me out when I say that I wrote to a girl in high school. It makes me sound like a creep, and I have to quickly <laughs> say, I was in high school, too, at the time. And so I, I found this love letter that I'd written, but never gave her. And I immediately, upon reading that love letter, thought, this is ridiculous. I started thinking about who is this kid, and obviously this kid is me, but I was really struck by the relationship between past and present self, and I decided to share that on stage with total strangers and then invite other people who might have saved their own love letters or poetry or diary entries to do the same. One thing I realized is there were a lot of women reading from their diaries, and I don't know too many men who wrote diaries. Is is that something that I'm making up? Hmm. <laughs> are you making up what you know? No, uh, you are noticing accurately. For whatever reason, diaries do tend to be sort of the domain of females more so. It doesn't mean that there aren't boys writing diaries or even later men. We have a lot of men on our show Uh, although we definitely have more women. But basically, men, I have learned that if I meet a guy at a party and uh, they're telling me, oh, you know, Dave does this show, it's called Mortified, blah, blah, blah. If I want to try to recruit, I might say to the man, oh, did you ever write anything as a kid? And then to help them along, I usually won't say diaries first. I might say things like, you know, this is like, did you ever write a love letter when you were like 14? Or maybe you wrote some song lyrics when you thought you were going to be the next Kurt Cobain or the next Tupac. When I was a kid, I thought it would be a couple things. One was a basketball player, 
and that really didn't pan out. The other was a rapper. Growing up, I was fortunate enough to have a mom who was really sensitive and compassionate. Before I started high school, she got me a journal, which turned out to be a place where I explored my inner gangster rap persona. A gangster who wanted nothing more than to find true love. I wanted a girlfriend, but I was clueless as to how to go about it. Following entries reveal a lovesick 15-year-old who had the heart of a poet and the vocabulary of Flava Flav. Just a quick note, at the end of each entry, I felt it necessary to notate what I wore and ate each day. February 10th. Today was whack, straight up, no doubt. I have this weird feeling about Julie. I love? Nah, man, she is my idol, what the f***? I somehow became mesmerized with her. She rules. I wore a Houston Rockets hat, white turtleneck, ivory pants, and ate chili dogs. Peace, one love. Statistically, I know guys tend to have written other things. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. But that's weird because, you know, if the thought is, okay, so, and maybe you have a different opinion of why that makes sense, but, like, if the thought is, boys don't write in journals because journals are confessional and sincere and more in touch with their emotions. But if that's the case, then why do boys write song lyrics and poetry? You know, because those are pretty vulnerable and in touch with their emotions. So I, I don't know <laughs> why that is. Maybe it's one of those traditions that just didn't get passed down from father to son, but more likely from mother to daughter. Maybe. And what's also really interesting is every great leader, which, which in our culture, every, or I should say every prominent leader, which in our culture tends often be male, like a, a leader of like a, a business or, or a politician. Historically, those are men. And they often will publish their journals. Like a president will, you know, a senator will at some point publish their journals. And so it's like alpha males find this to be an okay activity. But, yeah, there's just something about young teenage boys where that is. Less. And, and I'm always fascinated by that, so I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. Well, um, I've always thought there was something wrong with me or something that I was doing wrong when I was young. So now I, now I think I, I know what the problem was. Meaning you were journaling or you were not? I was not. I was not writing yeah. about my feelings. I was not writing about all the, the challenges that I was going through. I was mulling them over in my mind, which is... I don't think it's the most efficient way of doing it. One of my favorite episodes of the Mortified podcast is this guy who's a football player in Ohio, in Youngstown, Ohio. And he is proof, and he's, you know, like the star player of the team. And he is the guy who probably beats up all the other Mortified performers <laughs> in high school, like in, in theory. You know, he's just like a tough guy. And he keeps a diary. And the diary is very vulnerable and real. It's also very intense, like a, like a football player would be. Like, it's like there's a lot of him psyching himself up in it. 
it's really like you you could you by reading it you understand his discipline it's really fascinating to hear that because i think we typically think of diaries as the domain of you know a teenage girl writing like dear diary i'm so in love with brian my parents are such jerks like that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but this guy is super smart, captain of the football team, like all these things, and he's going through the same emotions. He's going through the same stuff, and I love it because it really demonstrates how even even that popular football player is just as much of an insecure, vulnerable, neurotic person as anybody else at school. And I think that's kind of lovely, <laughs> a good balance to realize. And, you know, it just occurred to me that I've always secretly envied women, often my girlfriends, who did a lot of journaling and that that sort of self-reflective writing. I just never had the patience or the drive or it wasn't indoctrinated into me at all. I was indoctrinated to read but not to write. Mm. So I feel like I, I really missed out on something. And you're a writer. I am. I, I moved to Los Angeles to write years ago, and my career took a detour, and somehow I became the guy who reads teenage diaries for a living. So talk about the writing that you did before you came up with that idea and how, how you, you did that detour, how that happened, and how sure. Mortified came into being, you know, the fledgling moments. Sure. So I moved to Los Angeles prior to doing Mortify. You know, I graduated college and I went to school in upstate New York. And I moved to LA hoping to be like, you know, to write animation and to like fantasy and science fiction and all that. Like I just, I wanted to write like big colorful comedies like Pee Wee's Big Adventure and, you know, or like Toy Story. Like I wanted to write these things that were, big, fun, imaginative, not not real, though, like animated or puppets or something like that. And I got an agent. I had written this, this pilot for something. I had written this pilot in college that got me an agent. The pilot was a puppet show for adults called The Day Room, and it was all about puppets who are in a mental rehab facility or dysfunctional puppets who've been thrown out of children's television for various reasons. And now they are in this rehab facility, like a cuckoo's nest type place, where they're, you know, hopefully going to get better. And if they get better, they can graduate and get back onto children's TV because that's the only place that will hire puppets. So it was like all these puppets with various, like, fears of children or, you know, various issues that prevented them from getting work on like Sesame Street and stuff. And it was this really fun show and it kind of dealt with like therapy and sort of like the inklings of things that I later start working with. And that led to an agent and that led to like pitching all these ideas and selling a bunch of ideas. And so I wrote things like that and I wound up having success actually. I wound up like selling ideas, shooting ideas with networks. And then they all kind of crashed and burned, like within a six-month period. They all got shot within a year and all crashed and burned within like a few months. And I kind of, in the ashes of that, what I saw was failure. I, I wound up 
wanting to do Mortify. I wanted to like, like I want to do something where I am my own green light one night. And so I said, I'm going to rent a theater and I'm going to read that love letter that I have. And I'm going to invite other people to read the same because I just wanted, basically the point of art is to make an audience react emotionally, to do something that they weren't already doing, you know, prior to them reading your book or, or watching your show or whatever it is. And I just wanted to taste that experience because the things that I was trying to do in television were just sitting on a shelf. No one was getting to see them. And also the, the network execs were like watering it down and doing all these things that I didn't really like. And I was so young and inexperienced that I didn't know how to defend myself and defend my ideas for whatever the integrity might have been. So I think Mortified became this outlet. And little did I know it would become an outlet that would take over my life. It was just supposed to be a one-night thing. So what was it about this mortified concept that so appealed to you? I liked... It's funny, because I define mortified as a storytelling show where adults read their most embarrassing childhood diaries and blah, blah, blah uh, in front of strangers in order to reveal a story about their lives. Like we edit the diaries in a way that reveals a, a storyline, much in the way that like a journalist interviews somebody and finds the storyline in there. We're not manufacturing any kind of story, like reality TV kind of thing. We're exposing what's there. And I say that because we define this as a storytelling show, but the thing that attracted me to Mortified was actually, I assumed this had nothing to do with story. And I was like, I wanted to sort of escape storytelling because I was very frustrated with the writing process. And I thought this will be a fun excursion because it's like, it's not writing. It's just sort of repurposing other people's teenage writing. And I struggled with the concept of story, I think, at the, at the time, like as a writer, because it was a dialogue and I kind of struggled with story. I was like, I'll escape, I'll sidestep everything and just at some point I'll come back and I'll work on my craft and all that. And what I didn't realize is I was learning, I was barreling into a crash course in story. Because in prepping Mortified and in putting these diaries, these love letters and poems on stage, I realized the thing that can make them interesting is helping to frame them as a story. And again, treating it like a journalist where you're not manufacturing a story, but you're, you're interviewing the people and finding details about their lives that you can sprinkle into the piece, into their performance, so that when they're on stage, they're framing their life a little bit like a story. So nothing has taught me more about story than Mortified, the thing that I, I ran to because I thought it was void of it. It's interesting that you found your way back into the realm of story through the realm of shame and awkwardness, which mm. are classic stories, but they're stories and experiences that we avoid sharing with anybody else. And we, we live in, <laughs> in a state of mortification about them, generally. It's not something we would deliberately think of sharing or using as storytelling material. So, and of course, shame is becoming rather popular these days 
because of Brene Brown and her mm-hmm. her very famous TED Talk. Yep. Do you think, well, which came first, Mortified or Brene Brown talking about and writing about shame? Do you know? We definitely came before her, her famous TED Talk, which I have seen and I'm a big fan of. She very well could have been researching shame long before that. I don't know if Brene Brown is aware of Mortified. She's probably one of the number one people I'd love to collaborate with. But, you know, I have a mission with Mortified. My mission is I want to change people's relationship to shame. Like, I want to make them laugh, but that's just the conduit, you know. That's just the way in which I want to change people's relationship to shame. So I want to do that, and I want to help people foster empathy. And I want to do both of those things through laughter. And to me, you know, shame is this toxic thing in a lot of our lives, and it really shapes a lot of us. It shapes so many of our stories, and I have a pretty profound and deep relationship with that word, just the things in my own life. And, you know, I didn't even realize until I was somewhere in the middle of doing Mortified over the years, which I've been doing for 15 years, that that was my mission. But it has been my mission all along, and it's no coincidence that I was drawn to Mortified. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dave Nadelberg. He's a writer, producer, and creator of Mortified, a grassroots storytelling project where adults get up on stage and share embarrassing diaries and other things they created as kids. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So when you started doing Mortified, did you have the awareness that we all suffered from shame and awkwardness when we were young and that usually that continues throughout our lives, at least to some degree? Yeah. You know, I I, I was really interested in doing a thing that showcased our commonalities, something that bridged people. And, you know, one of those things can be Shame, and I like that we all have different reasons for feeling it, but we all feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a deep emotional experience, and that was one of the things that you said early on, that you wanted to create something that the audience or audiences could connect with on an emotional level, and this is mm-hmm. such a primal emotional thing for us. Yeah, and when I say emotional level, by the way, I don't just mean like, sobbing and and having deep, you know, serious emotions. I I do mean that laughter is also, you know, um, and joy are are, uh, emotional states. Well, what I'm hearing is that you're talking about the audience feeling with the person telling their story or reading their embarrassing work. So isn't that the definition of empathy is feeling with? Yeah, we actually have a philosophy in a mortified behind the scenes that the audience should laugh at cheer for mm-hmm. that's what they should be doing when they're when they're hearing somebody's on stage diary if you listen to any clips from our podcast or anything from uh, moments from our, our we have this new tv series on netflix called the mortified guide 
if you pay attention, you'll notice that when you're laughing, it tends to be in this way where you, you are laughing at them, but not in this snarky, snide way. You're laughing at them in a way where you're at the same time rooting for them and cheering for them and connecting with them. And, and I think that is what kind of all storytelling is, is identifying with the, with the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's, you know, we get to play on nostalgia and like, I think you get to hear your own childhood experiences reflected in whoever's on stage, even if they had a childhood that's very different than yours. She wants it. I want to give it to her. But what is it? Instead, I miss the whole civil rights thing and am now the byproduct of what everybody was fighting for. The right to be the only black kid in the classroom. Thanks a whole f***ing lot. I love that you just used the word protagonist because it just made me think of the mythological hero's journey and usually that journey personifies great feats and great stories of great heroes, but it doesn't tend to glorify the mistakes we've made or the things that we are not proud of. And I think that's one of the great things that the audience cheers on. It laughs, but it also is like, yeah, is cheering them on. It's like, yeah, go, girl, or tell that story. Yes, I love it. Yes, tell that story. <laughs> yeah, usually the end of every episode of the Mortified Guide Netflix series has sort of what I call the epic piece. So each episode is like five pieces. And usually the, the last one is either the funniest or it's the most heroic in some way, epic in some way. Often it's very emotional. And you find that like there's an episode where a guy who is actually a different football I know I, earlier I referenced somebody who was a football player reading their stuff, but we have more than one. And so at the end of one of our episodes called The Mortified Guide to Sitting In, this football player secretly wrote a musical in high school and he was really into musicals. And you wind up really cheering for him. Like, there's something really endearing about him doing it. And then he winds up having a big life lesson because of this musical. It winds up teaching him a very important lesson about the power of friendship. And you hear the audience, they cheer at the end. When he presents his final song, they are just roaring and erupting. And we have another segment in the, in the TV show where a woman who writes a fan letter in the, in the episode called The Mortified Guide to Pop Culture. At the very end, there's a woman who writes a fan letter to a soap star, a soap opera actor, and basically, you know, confessing her love and saying, like, this soap star was the conduit for her to figure out her own sexuality because the soap opera actress was portraying the first gay character ever on daytime TV. And so it was a big deal and uh, help this woman discover her truth. And basically, spoiler alert, don't listen to this if you don't want, but we bring that soap opera actress out on stage at the end of her performance, and she reads aloud the fan letter that was sent to her years ago that she, you know, she got tons of fan mail, so she didn't really remember this, but she reads aloud this fan letter. And it's so, you hear the audience erupt 
like roar with like it's not about laughs it's about like cheering like they're like thrilled for this person to have this moment I've watched a number of clips of Mortified, and that's the beautiful thing about these audiences is the great support that they give to the protagonists on the stage. Yeah. And for me, it's very heartening. I mean, I'm affected emotionally by that, just to see more examples of people out there who, who really care about other people. Yeah. I think you see that a lot in Mortified. You, you hear it in, in the Mortified podcast, and you, you see it in the Mortified Guide, you know, on our Netflix show. So how do you get people to open up and tell these stories? Or let's say, how did you, be, how'd you do that in the beginning? Because I, I imagine now that your show is popular, people probably just come to you. But how did it start in the beginning? How did you convince people that this was a worthwhile thing and, and even more than worthwhile. Gosh, I was so scared. I didn't know who was going to want to do this. I do remember having the idea and then sitting down and composing this email. And I wrote what was essentially a pretty long-winded email about, hi, I'm doing this show. It's going to be called Mortified. Do you have things from your past? It could be a diary. It could be a love letter. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. And that letter, which had no graphics, there was no logo, there was no anything, it went viral. Like, I, I said, does anybody have anything? Feel free to share with friends. They did. And those friends shared with other friends, and those shared with other friends, and so on and so on. And I started hearing from strangers, like saying, oh, I wrote song lyrics, or I wrote poems, and, and then they would read me these things over the phone. And I was like, oh, maybe we can put this in the show. And so I started hearing stuff pretty immediately, and I, I had to figure out really quickly the following, which is, what makes bad writing good writing? Like, for my purposes. What makes things where we're kind of laughing at it, like, what's my criteria? Like, what, what works? Because I quickly learned most of the stuff we saved from our childhood is fun to share with your siblings, and your friends for like 60 seconds, but it is not great to share with strangers for seven to eight minutes. And so I had to figure out what, when does that become fun? What's the criteria? And so that, that became a journey. And you have a method to this mortified... Madness. Madness, yes. <laughs> so how has is, how is that developed over time, and, and what is that method? That, that takes uh, and, material like that and makes for a seven or eight minute yeah. thing. Well, it's sort of two steps. The first thing we do is we just look for things that are funny, like things that make us laugh. And we don't pay attention to story at all. I discourage it. Like, oh, th this diary entry is funny. This poem is funny. But let's just collect comedy. And then the second step is that once we've amassed what we believe to be at least eight minutes of comedy, now let's stand back and figure out what does this reveal about this person? What conflicts was this kid facing? What themes emerge in this collection of things that we, we just found? And the reason I do that in that order is because I can basically find a story in pretty much anything. You can find a story in pretty much anything if you know what questions to ask. 
you can't find comedy in anything. It doesn't work the other way around. And so with Mortify, we know that we must be funny. And we have story in our pieces, but sometimes it's like story with a capital S and sometimes it's story with a very lowercase s where it's like story-ish, you know, but it always must be funny. And it can also be dark and sad and serious in moments, but it needs to be like 70% funny. So we start with that. And the things we look for are entries that are, you know, that take themselves very serious, entries that are misguided, entries that are petty and superficial, entries that are melodramatic. Those are the things that tend to work. The one thing that you would assume happens a lot in a show called Mortified, and actually happens quite rarely, is, and when it does, it's great, but is entries that capture an embarrassing experience. Like, Dear Diary, today I had my period, but I was wearing white pants, and I was in the middle of assembly at school. Right? So that's an intense experience. So that can be a very intense experience, but it's rare that we actually have moments like that in, in Mortified. For the most part, the events that are happening that these kids are writing about in their diaries are usually pretty mundane events. It's more their perspective on the event that's embarrassing. My first kiss, he immediately just like stuck his whole tongue down my throat. When I was a kid, I felt really isolated and alone. I was part of the nerd herd. I think I was shy when it came to guys. I didn't know what sex was. When I was a kid, I humped pillows. I never knew. I didn't know where to put the penis. Dear Diary. Dear Journal. September 13th. July 29th. I've never been attracted to a man in the way that I'm attracted to countless women. Maybe that means something. When I got my period, my mom threw some maxi pads and she was like, here you go. Figure it out. But above everything, I love your laugh. Your laugh fills me with joy and happiness, and it is high and pure, and it makes anything seem possible. When I'm in the library during second period, and you come in to get out of Spanish, and you sit with us, and I read these poems in the Adam Sandler voice, and you laugh, I can't stand it. <laughs> I want everyone to laugh, sure, but I'm really doing it for you. God, you are so beautiful. You are the most beautiful woman in the world. Every time I see you, I get dizzy, my palms start to sweat, and I can barely contain myself. I want to kiss you, but I don't have to. I'd be happy just cuddling up to you and burying my head in your long curly hair and telling you how great it feels to be with you. Total virgin. What the f Idiot. November 16th, 2003. I am delivered from the homosexual lifestyle. <laughs> so, so why do I keep going on the chat line looking at people through their webcams? <laughs> what is it about males that turns me on? Maybe I just need to get some and that'll change my mind. <laughs> a deep, dark secret to hide. Writing the diary, I think it did help in a lot of ways. I had to learn to not give up, that I was someone that had a lot to give. I'm sorry, I'm so nervous. <laughs> 
this is a secret journal, so get out before I bitch slap you. There's an episode called The Mortified Guide to Family on our Netflix show. It opens up with a man named Robert Wu. And Robert just talks about how much he hates his parents. You know, they moved from Korea to America, and he hates being like an immigrant son, and he's embarrassed of his immigrant parents. And he's really wrestling with a lot of cultural identity issues. The events that sort of happen in it aren't really embarrassing. It's more... You're laughing at his outsized rage towards them, you know, um, like, because he just has a lot of hostility towards them. And the hostility is fun because, you know, of course, if he's reading this in a show where, like, the word embarrassment is in the title, he knows now that his parents moved here, and that was a heroic and amazing thing. And they weren't villains at all. They were heroes. Sort of like a cultural cognitive dissonance that appears in everybody's personal experience and story. Yeah. So why do you think people want to do these, want to go up on stage and, and share this material with complete strangers? I think everybody wants to be a rock star for a night. Everybody wants to know what is it like to get up on stage and sort of control or own a room and make people react. And those who don't, don't. I would say the majority of our audience does not want to be on stage and mortified. They're happy to be sitting out there. But there's enough people out there who, who really want to know. And within that, there's enough people who actually have material that we can use. And I think the other appeal is the way to change your relationship to your childhood self, to change your relationship to shame and how you felt about that kid, to honor that kid while at the same time sort of burying a part of who that kid was, of burying your past and making peace with it. That sounds pretty profound. Yeah, I think it is profound. I think that's genuinely why they're doing it. I think that's why I do it. And we get people who do it, and they, they tell us afterwards just how you know, meaningful the experience was to them and fun and exciting and scary. And you know, they go through a, a range of emotions, and I, I love that. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dave Nadelberg. He's a writer producer and creator of Mortified, a grassroots storytelling project where adults get up on stage and share embarrassing diaries and other things they created as kids. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I would love to hear more of those kind of postscript stories, but since I have you on the phone, what did you learn from sharing that love letter on stage with people? What did you learn about yourself, and what did you gain in that way? I look at the love letter that I wrote, which was very earnest, and let me read you a little excerpt. 
it's earnest, but it's also very flowery and pretentious. Like I was trying very hard to get this girl's attention. She did not know me. And the idea was that I would just give it to her, like walk up and hand her the letter and then walk away and she would read it the class like 20 minutes later and be like, this guy's the one for me. And so the letter began like this. Hello, Leslie. How was your day today? Mine's quite well, I must admit, because what you're about to read may or may not add an extra color to the rainbow at day's end. So, like, just ridiculous. Just absolutely insane. <laughs> like, pretentious and flowery. And so when I look back at that, I think that's someone who's trying very hard, who's overthinking things, and that is me today on a lot of levels. And seeing that highlighted in that way is like, oh, oh, this is a pattern for you, David. This isn't just like you in your 30s or 40s. Like, this is, this is you. And it allows me to, you know, by acknowledging something, you can kind of own it a little bit and control it to some degree. And you can also make peace with it in some way. So, like, it allows me to change some of that behavior in myself. And that's sort of like one of the negative things, I guess, about it. But I would say, like, I also can notice, like, positive things where, you know, I think that kid who wrote that, pretentious as he was, he thinks he's kind of clever. And, you know, he likes language. And I think it's nice to see. And I like language to this day. And it's nice to see where you come from. Because I think we all arrogantly think, listen, I know my issues. You know, I don't need to go to a therapist. I don't, you know, I've, I've been that person in my life. And I've known those people. And I think you do and you don't. And I think anything that can help highlight the patterns in your life is great. And it just happens to be a fun way to do it. You can also pay a lot of money and go to therapy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you, noticing the patterns in your life, this this is just a real good shortcut to be like, oh, like if you go home, it's a two-step process. The sharing is part of it. Is dig up something from your past, right? I'd tell anybody to do this, even if you have no interest in mortifying. Go home, dig up something from your past, and share it with just one person and have a discussion after. Like have them ask you interviews, like, Why did you write the thing you wrote? What was the outcome of it? How similar do you think you are to that kid? And how different do you think you are to that kid? And just by answering those questions, similar the difference and why you did it, what inspired you to write whatever the entry is, you learn profound, profound, profound things every single time about who you are. And if you don't have childhood writings, that's fine. You could do this with even a prom photo. You could do this really with any detail about your life. And I often encourage people, don't talk about you. Talk about that kid. Make it a third-person thing. Because it helps you see things as a different thing. And there's even research that suggests, scientific research now, that suggests that we actually see our childhood past really as some, like, other person. And I love that because I encourage people to do that all the time because it allows them to talk about their childhood self easier. Like if I said, Tonio, tell me about your childhood, you might feel intimidated by me asking that because I'm, I'm sort of violating a little bit of, of whatever our relationship is. But if I say, tell me about that kid, you know, that kid you were or, or whatever when you were in third grade, 
you'd probably start to respond, that kid was shy, that kid was talkative or whatever it is. And it helps, it gives you a distance to where it feels safer that you can talk about it. I think it allows you to be more objective about that kid and see the, the sort of the connective tissues between you and that person. Yeah, this is kind of like a gold mine that you're working with. One of my favorite things about what happens to an audience member during Mortified is this idea that they really make it about themselves. And I don't mean that in some unhealthy, self-absorbed kind of way. I mean that in, like, I imagine when you were watching or listening to anything, you immediately start comparing it to your own life. First, maybe with the simple questions of, like, would I get up and do that? What stories do I have? Or, oh, this person is talking about how much they hate their parents. How did I feel about my parents? And maybe you felt the same, or maybe you were the person who's like, was best friends with your parents. But you start thinking about your own relationships to things. And I love that. And I love when it sparks a conversation between two people who watch, you know, The Mortified Guide. Like after we've seen tweets from people who are like, oh, I just watched The Mortified Guide with my daughter or my brother or my husband or whatever. And they're talking about like how afterwards they wound up in this very deep conversation about who they were as kids. And I, I love that. For me, that's part of the show is the conversation that happens after the show. Mm -hmm. So Mortified is now happening in other countries. What has the response been? And are people as receptive in other countries to talking about their shame and awkwardness and sharing these things as you've experienced here in this country? I think every show we've ever launched, by show I mean city, I've heard that the people in City X might not be willing to share will be different in a certain city. So even when I was launching in L.A., they were like, well, in L.A., it's all about being cool, so they're not going to really want to do this. And I was like, that's a really outmoded way of looking at Los Angeles. And I was right, because people were fine with doing this. And then we opened in New York, and they said, well, this will work in L.A., but it won't work in New York for reasons X, Y, and Z. You know, people don't really... Blah, blah, blah. And, of course, that was wrong. And then every single city, and then when we left the coast, and we went in, inwards to Chicago and to Detroit and to Austin and Dallas and, and then eventually to Europe, places in Scandinavia. We went to Paris. We have a show in London and Dublin. And, you know, a lot of these places where people say that, oh, you know, the Brits are, are much more tight-lipped and, you know, they're not into therapy and all that stuff. Well, sure. But this is different, and people are people, teenagers are teenagers, wherever they are. The real test for me will come, and this is my dream project, this is my next project, is when we get to Asia, because that is a culture which has a lot of stereotypes and baggage around the word shame, and I'm fascinated by their relationship to shame. And I'm convinced that it will not be an issue in that culture, but I am also completely ignorant <laughs> towards the realities. But that is the one place that I think will really test this. I think if I went to South Africa, I think if I went to Spain, if I went to Russia, if I went wherever I went, I don't think I would meet the resistance. But I do think in Asia, and specifically like Japan, that is the one place that might test that. And I'm dying 
to get the funding to do. We really want to do a project that takes us there. Hmm. Do you have any sense of a timetable of when that might happen? As soon as you cut me a check to, <laughs> to, to fund, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a book. I don't know if it's a documentary. We do have a we do have a project called Mortified Planet that we're trying to get off the ground right now, where we do go around the world. But you know, to me, that's that's my final. After that, I'll be done unless unless we discover alien life forms, and then in which case, then I want to go to space. But after that, I think that will be the final chapter for my mortified experience. Maybe mortified will go on without me, but like my work there is done. If we can do some sort of international thing, I, I'm I'm really determined to do this Asia thing. I love that planet mortified notion. I love the universality of it because. As I get older and talk with more and more people and hear more and more stories, it just keeps reinforcing the notion, the, the recognition that we are all very much the same in the most essential ways. Yeah. And the more we can, yeah. more we can share that and reveal that to everybody else, I think the better things will be in this crazy world. And that's, that's why I really want to do it. Mortified is not a political show. It is, it, is a, it is a comedy show. It is a storytelling show. We largely avoid topical politics. But I do also believe everything is political at the same time. And I believe one of the biggest issues in our country, maybe the world, I don't know world culture as well, but it is an empathy crisis definitely happening in our country. Definitely. Definitely with this president and definitely with the left and the right's reaction to this president. And so we have this empathy crisis where people just just hating each other and they're grandstanding and they're demonizing everybody. And it's just sort of like, uh, and I just think projects that cut through the bullshit and projects that kind of illuminate our shared experiences and, and illuminate how we're not polarized and how similar we are and, and humanize everybody, I think are really important and really needed. I believe that if you are a super conservative person and you watch an episode of The Mortified Guide that deals with someone who is gay, if you watch a segment about someone's experience being gay, even if you're against gay marriage, even if you're all those things, like it puts you in their shoes in a way that you don't get in church, you know? Because in church they're telling you this is bad, and it's like, okay, maybe it is bad. Let's, let's, let's go, let's even say that, but like at least this experience of listening to somebody's story allows you to identify with them and be in their shoes and understand the world from their perspective. And so you can't walk away not feeling a little bit of something. It has to change you in some way. It may not change your ultimate political viewpoint about it, but I know it would change in some way. And I think that type of thing is really needed in our country for issues on the left, for issues on the right, but for everything. And so... That is why I, I think that Mortified Planet would be a super exciting thing to do. But it's something that's burning in me right now about this, you know, the polarization of this country. And it's, it's why I feel our TV show is happening at a really great time. You know, it's a show that just landed on Netflix. It has nothing to do with politics. And I think it has everything to do with the political climate. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I'm totally on board with you about all of that and let's change the world yeah yeah no, we're not gonna do it well <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> people are changed by um, hearing other people's stories, and and I think yeah. what you're doing is is very valuable. You're you're doing your part in this. Yeah, my friend Leah Tao has a great podcast called Strangers. She has a phrase she uses called radical empathy. T H A U. Okay. And she has a podcast called Strangers. Radical empathy is a phrase I've seen her use, and. The minute I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, I wish I came up with that. I want to, how, how do I co-opt that? Because it's, so I am co-opting it. I just, I'm always crediting her. Really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm so glad I discovered Mornified and have gotten to talk to you more deeply about it. Thank you so much. I'm always grateful that anybody has any curiosity about it. You know, to, to clarify, we are a completely independent project. We've made books. We have a new book called My Mortified Life, and we've made, you know, TV and all this stuff. But we are still very much a grassroots independent organization. And I mention all of that because we rely on people like you and we rely on listeners like your listeners. If, if they like it, if you like it, which sounds like you do, but to tell people about it, that's our marketing budget. Our marketing budget is people being loud now and people like I watched this movie on Netflix or I watched this series on Netflix and we have both, you know, and I, I, I want, or I listen to the podcast. I want to tell people about it. So if, if people are interested, they can go to getmortified.com and they can see the whole host of crapola that we have in the world of mortification. And as far as crapola, it's, it's really good stuff. I mean, that's, that's one, of the, that's one of the fascinating things is that the jewels, the most precious jewels, are often found in those big, steaming piles. Yeah. And you have to work um, for it. <laughs> I really wish I could have put that on our poster for our new TV series. That was a great phrase. Well, I kind of bastardized that old metaphor. I just want to end by like, letting you know, if you are into journaling... That new book that I was telling you about, it's actually a journal, like a guided journal. So even if you're someone who never kept a journal as a teenager but kind of wanted to, this journal is full of writing prompts that ask you fun and provocative questions about your life and help you figure out, help you identify how much you've changed since you were a kid by asking you the same questions about your life today as we ask you about your life growing up. Like, for instance, like, what was the biggest fight you got in the past year? Who was it with and how did it resolve and how long did it last? What was the biggest fight you got in when you were growing up based on whatever you remember? Who was it with? How long did it last? How did it resolve? Did it resolve? What was it about? And you journal about the two and it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot in common with these and there's a lot that's different. And then you basically rate yourself on a scale of one to five how much you believe you've changed every single entry. And by the end of the book, you can average up all these numbers and determine, oh my God, I'm still the same weirdo I was when I was 14. And that's the Mortified Journal? Yeah, it's actually called My Mortified Life, a guided journal to gauge how much you've changed since childhood. It's a really unique journal. And I'm telling you about it because literally no one's bought it, and I'm really proud of it. Uh -huh. People know about our Netflix show. People know about our podcast. No one really knows about my mortified life, and they should. And it only has, like, three Amazon reviews. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I just, I, I just try to tell more people about it because I'm really proud of it, and it's really good. It's really unique. It's a really good gift. Well, sounds great. And sounds like something I, I want to get. Many, but. No, no, you've you sold me. I'm I'm going to get it, and also I'm going to do a little shout out to all the kids out there, particularly the boys. Think about doing, you know, keeping a journal. And parents, tell your boys, or at least encourage them, suggest that there might be some great value for them to do that. So I wish I had been encouraged in some way to do that by somebody who, who I would listen to. I didn't listen to my parents very much when I was growing up. And I know that's, yeah. that's a challenge. But, but if you have friends, if you have friends that you respect and that you really like and they journal, that, that could be a good inspiration. And I think there's something very intimidating about journals because it's like, oh, it's like requires a lot of discipline and there's really no writing prompts usually unless you have a journal that has one. And I think what's helpful is you don't have to see it as, as a long commitment, but if you just say, look, I'm just going to keep a journal every Sunday, right? Or I'm going to keep a journal just for a month. I'm just going to see how it goes. Like just creating some kind of routine for self-reflection is good. And if you have other outlets for self-reflection, then that's, that's great. Do those. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Thank you again so much for all of your time and your work and for this great conversation. Ah, thank you. And that was Dave Nadelberg. He's a writer, producer, and creator of Mortified, a grassroots storytelling project where adults get up on stage and share embarrassing diaries and other things they created as kids. As a postscript to this interview, I connected with Dave Nadelberg through the Green Mountain Film Festival. One of the films at the Green Mountain Festival last weekend was The Mortified Guide. And Dave Nadelberg was scheduled to come out from L.A. to talk about the Mortified Project after the film and then do a storytelling workshop, which they had carefully planned for over a year. But the Parkland school shooting happened, and building upon the momentum of the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements, kids all over the country rose up to protest the lack of action on the gun control issue and the safety of our kids in our schools in a nation rampant with gun violence and little in the way of gun regulation and a clear dominance of gun politics by the NRA and other gun advocates. And the long and short of it is that the protest march for gun control last weekend happened at the exact time the Mortified Guide and Dave's storytelling workshop was scheduled. And, unfortunately, very few people signed up for it. So, the Green Mountain Festival canceled Dave Nadelberg's appearance and workshop. But I still got to interview Dave and find out about Mortified, for which I'm very grateful. I just thought as soon as the Vermont thing got canceled, I was like, oh, he's probably going to shelve this whole thing. And I felt bad that I wasted your time. And then I also just felt bad. Like, I was like, I really wanted, I wanted to do this. You can find out more and experience more of Mortified at getmortified.com. It's the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College, 
Community Radio. Next, we're going to hear some stories from the mortified stage. Hi, I'm Will. When I was 15, my parents got a divorce. I had to leave all my friends behind, release my pet hamsters in a field, and move to Lake Tahoe. My mom got this really great job working for an actress, Liza Minnelli. Meanwhile, things didn't go so great for me. I became the new kid. Uh, it was rough. I got beat up, uh, so I ditched school, I shoplifted, uh, kids called me fag. Fun times. But I knew I had to go back to school and find a place where I could be accepted. Unfortunately, I found the Drama Club. September 5th, 1980. I can't stand myself. I hate my body and my insides. I must have cried all afternoon just because of it all. So I ditched typing, which is my last class. Oh, back in the day when we took typing. And I took the bus to Caesar's Casino. I stole a gold necklace. I don't know why. December 7th, Sunday. I made a really good dumpling soup. December 8th, I hated school today. I've gained two more enemies who can't stand me. One guy did this imitation of me in class, and he called me a fag, and the teacher didn't do anything about it. The other one said he was going to kick my ass after school. I don't even know him. I don't know anybody. I should have just cut school. January 18th, Friday. They made the announcement today about the school play. It's called The Butler Did It. I took a flyer for the auditions. I wish every day was the end of the week. January 20th. <laughs> I saw my bodyguard on HBO tonight. It is now my favorite movie of all time. Journal. I wish I knew a guy that was really big. It would be my friend. And he would beat up all the bad guys at school so they would stop hurting me. Today I stole a binder and some folders so I can keep organized. I needed it. Monday, I got cast in the play. Oh my God! Woo! After school, the whole cast read through it together. I play Rick Carlisle, who's supposed to be a mystery writer, and my twin brother. Two roles! March 11th. Oh my God, journal, I'm in the paper today, and there's a picture of me from the play. So apparently there was quite a buzz about our play, and so here's a preview piece um, that they showed in the South Tahoe <laughs> Daily Tribune. Um, I love the typo. Did Butler do it? <laughs> March 17th, the dress rehearsal today was wild. It's like doing the play for real, but no one's there to see it. Do you understand? March 19th, Thursday, opening night. The performance tonight was absolutely, positively the greatest. The audience was laughing at everything, even stuff I did. Journal, oh my God, the review for The Butler Did It came out in the newspaper today. All right, so South Tahoe High apparently takes these plays really seriously. And so they ran a full page review of the play with a photo. Here it is. If the butler did it, he should have been fired. 
I thought, that didn't really sound good. So it's a really long review. I'm just going to give you some excerpts. Last Thursday, South Tahoe High School presented The Butler Did It, a sad piece of theater directed by Linda Babbage. Not an original idea for a plot. I believe I watched something like it on TV with Peter Falk not too long ago. The play takes established characters from various detective novels and tries to bring them to life on stage. We didn't write this play. We were in high school. This production needed those dangling microphones I complained about in past productions as the players, they did not project well. As for Rick and Laura Carlyle, Mary Hitchcock, who played Laura, is a stately blonde with a model's flair for wearing clothes. Creepy, she's in high school. Her characterization was stronger than that of her husband, Rick Carlyle, played a bit too fay by Bill Seymour. Hey, hmm, March 24th. Today I went to the library and I looked up the word fay in the dictionary. Fay, adjective, a, exaggerated effeminate mannerisms exhibited especially by homosexuals. B, a man who places particular importance upon physical appearance and the cultivation of the leisurely hobbies of a gay man. C, fated to die, doomed and marked by foreboding of death. Oh my God, journal, I'm so upset. First everyone at school is calling me a fag and now the city newspaper just called me gay too. Oh my God. March 25th, I stole three hermit crabs at the store today. I don't know why. March 26th, I cut school yesterday and today and I stayed in my room. I don't want to see anyone that might have read the newspaper. Mom hasn't said anything. I don't think she reads the newspaper. Anyway, tomorrow night I'm going to watch Eight is Enough with Aunt Liza at her house. March 27th, I brought my review to show Aunt Liza. She didn't want to read it. She said she wouldn't look at it. She said it didn't matter, and it only mattered if I did my best, and if I thought I did a good job. And then she asked me a whole bunch of questions if I did a good job. And then I said yes, and she said, well, that's all that counts. And then we watched TV, and we hung out in her room. Eight is Enough is really fine. I was the girl people saw as the brooding bookworm. As much as I loved it, I desperately wanted to be seen as someone else. Someone more powerful, more sophisticated, more seductive. Like a character in an Anne Rice novel. Then, when I was 15, I finally started dating. The experience awakened a new side of myself that I could not contain. I was a woman reborn. A fierce sexual creature with an insatiable appetite. I needed more than mere puppy love. 
I needed action. Ripped from the pages of real life. Mortified's a comic excavation of the strange and extraordinary things we created as kids. Letters, lyrics, journals, home movies, and more. March 25th. Day, June 28th. Day I realized something horrible. 1-1896. I've been thinking about Anthony and I. Whether I like it or not, he is my soulmate. He is mine, I am his, and the extreme desire I have for him is above and beyond teenage hormones. I think of the way his neck curves, the way his breath feels, what he looks like with his eyes closed, how his long, soft, magic fingers slide into me and drive me to the brink of insanity. Where I would do anything, anything he asks. But he doesn't take advantage. He doesn't want to have sex. There are no selfish thoughts in his brain. Even the things he does that bring pain, he knows I like it. I like the way he hurts me. He knows exactly what I want him to do without me saying so, and he does it, keeping me in a constant state of ecstasy. Of course, I've only had a chance to meet him three times. Sitting here, it's 12.07 and I'm in tears. I just hung up with Anthony. He didn't say I love you tonight. I want to ache, I want to hurt. I want to have dark circles under my eyes that say look world, look what you've done. I'm near going crazy, I can feel it. When will it happen? I can see myself stabbing Megan, ripping Joe Axler's d- off and permanently embedding it in John's mouth, tying Rita's head to Megan's ass because that's where it always is anyway. alone like always no one sees no one cares they do their best to make what is already horrible intolerable well i guess that's it it's over with anthony my heart isn't broken for some reason i think this must be because i'm in denial i just finished the autobiography of boy george the last line really made me think to us all. I guess it's true. When you love someone, you find out what you really like. I saw that I am horrible, f***ed up, jealous, dependent, and weak. Mike. In high school, I was a big fish in a small pond. I was the captain of the football team in a town where high school football was everything. It was kind of like Friday Night Lights. People saw me as fearless. Some would even say intimidating. That's me tackling the shit out of a quarterback. But I had a secret. I was a super sensitive wuss. When graduation hit, I suddenly found myself overwhelmed with fear. In Youngstown, I was a hero, but in college, I was just going to be the naive kid who'd never been away from home before. I'd never even flown on a plane, and now I had to find the courage to face my future. Would I puss out and stay in a place where I was treated like a king, or would I sack up and start over in a world where I'd be just another number? March 9th. There's still times I wake up in the night with tears in my eyes, not 
believing that my high school football career is over. <laughs> to say I feel like sh is like saying the Grand Canyon is a pretty hole in the ground. <laughs> but my football career is nowhere near over. I've narrowed my college choices down to three schools. Wittenberg, Allegheny, and sit down for this one, Harvard. I'm undecided about so much that I'm undecided about being undecided on some things. What really matters in life are friends and family. You need friendship. You need someone to come up to you and give you a hug. Sometimes that hug is all that's keeping you up. April 5th, I got in. I am accepted to Harvard, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, no <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna puke. One of my best friends got drunk and went off on me, told me he was sick of me, hated me, called me a fat ass and pushed me, said, let's fight right here. He even had the audacity to say he'd fight me with one arm. And how my girlfriend was so much like a man, she would kick his ass. Incidentally, I broke up with my girlfriend two days ago. Well, Easter break of my senior year is almost over and what do I have to show for it? Not too much. I went to the doctor and had a wart removed, whoop-de-doo. I still have no clue about college, Harvard or Wittenberg. As I was fond of saying during football season when the shit hit the fan, it's nut-cutting time. May 23rd. Is God telling us that it's over? Last Thursday, I watched the final episode of Cheers. On 90210, Fresh Prince and other shows, high school kids graduated. Cosby, Growing Pains, Wonder Years, all are ending or have ended. Perhaps God is saying something. Perhaps these are not bad things. They are just a way of reminding us that there comes a time to move on. And for us, that time is now. Well, I picked Harvard. I leave on June 28th. I am scared, terrified, sad, manic depressive. A little skeptical. And paranoid. I'll have to say goodbye to my mom and dad, Bill and Chris, my dog, Flash, my room, my house, my friends, and Samantha. Samantha. I think about her name and I wonder if what we have is real. I want to believe she'll be faithful, but I don't know if I will be. I don't know if I want to be either. I'm about to hit the hardest wall of my life, and that wall's name is Harvard. Next week, school starts. That's when my life is going to get ridiculously hectic. Other than that, I really don't want too much of a social life. Social in college means beer drinking and cheap fondling of ugly girls. I guess now, I just have to say goodbye. June 30th, I'm here. Harvard University. Well, 
the summer school version anyway. It was worse than I expected for the first few days, but now I think things are coming together. It really is a whole new world here. It's a city. A big, no sh bum on the street, traffic up the ass city. I kind of like it. And I'm a local girl. I grew up about 15 miles north of here in Laurel, Maryland, and I was a very happy child. I loved school, Catholic school, no less. I loved hanging out with my friends, clothes, shopping. But the thing I loved the most, you guessed it, my mother. My mom had me when she was young. She was 21, and that closeness in age made her really relatable. It made her my idol in every way. I mean, I wanted to be her. When I was little, we used to dress alike, which was awesome. Uh, and as I got older, we continued to dress alike, which was slightly less awesome. And while other girls my age were writing notes to boys or to friends about boys or obsessing over their celebrity crushes, I was writing to my mother. Constantly. This started pretty much as soon as I learned how to write, and it continued and amplified when I was in middle school. There was a note to my mother at one point. Hello, my dear. I love you so much. I hope you feel well soon. I know you will. And I want you to know that I love you. Well, that's it, and I'll see you later. But before I go, I want to say that you are the most important person in my life, and you mean the world to me. I love you. And then there were the poems. May 1991. Mom, I love you. I sincerely do. Sometimes I know we argue and fight, but I still love you day and night. Mom, you are as gorgeous as a flower. Your love for me seems to shower. Mom, you are sweet as a truffle. Your love is clear unlike a muffle. <laughs> Mom, you are my best friend. My love for you shall never end. If I were separated from you, it would be tragic because, Mom, your love is magic. <laughs> my dad, by comparison, sort of got the short shrift. While I would spend hours creating elaborate dot matrix cards on the computer for my mother that would read, Mom, I love you. It's why I give you this. I am glad you are my mom. My dad would get a card that said, To a cool man, Jack Dad. So when I got into junior high school, I started keeping a diary. 
And it's really basic stuff. It's not told in a very revealing way because if there is one thing that Catholic school instilled in me, it was a sense of paranoia. I was convinced that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were watching over everything I was thinking, especially writing. So it makes sense that I just wrote about how much I loved my mother. <laughs> February 25th, 1994. My best friend, Jamie Supsick, asked me to spend the night, but I couldn't. During gym, she left me and went over to talk to Melanie about spending the night at her house. I feel left out and lonely and really mad at Jamie Supsick because only now that Melanie and I are friends, it seems like she wants to be her friend too. I felt like crying so bad, but I was able to talk to my mom about it. <laughs> that is why I love her so much. I can tell her anything and she agrees with what I say. <laughs> she made me feel so much better. And I think that entry is precisely what inspired another poem because it's dated three days later. February 28th, 1994. My best friend. My best friend is someone I can turn to for she is always there just to lend a helping hand and show me that she cares. My best friend is understanding I can talk to her anytime. I tell her my thoughts and feelings or whatever's on my mind. My best friend is loving caring that she shows me in many ways and through her gentle nature, we can relate even on difficult days. So as you can plainly see, my best friend is my mother and that she will always be. <laughs> but it wasn't always positive. I mean, sometimes my diary entries tended towards the melodramatic. Last night, I went to the doctors. I found a white growth in my throat. Mom and I were so scared it could be cancerous. It wasn't. It really made me think about the fact that my life could be over at any time. If I were to die right now, would I be happy with how I live my life? No. I didn't get to do anything yet. I have dreams to grow up, get married, have kids, become a successful lawyer and the first woman president. I have never dated, kissed, driven, worked, scuba dived, or even been any farther than West Cumberland, Maryland, North Pennsylvania, East Cocoa Beach, Florida, South, also Florida. <laughs> also, I now have a brand new signature. So I was ready to change some things. <laughs> and with that death scare, I came up with a list of new goals for my life. Goal page. By my eighth grade year, before I go to high school, I hope I have a cute boyfriend, have a job, have good hair and skin, gain 10 pounds, grow two inches, get a chest. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what we're all looking for in the first woman president, right? So sometimes I would outright lie in my diary. My mom was and is the most supportive, loving mother I could ever wish for. And she would never purposely do anything to make me feel bad. However, I was so crazy desperate to please her at all times that even the slightest inclination that she wasn't happy with something I said or slightly disappointed, I would act as if this was akin to severe child abuse. When it came time to leave my Catholic elementary school and go to high school, I was all over the place. And my mom said something like, you know, you should consider St. Vincent Pilate. I, however, 
wrote about those three seconds as if I was Sylvia Plath. <laughs> Dear diary, sorry I haven't written in a while. I've been busy. Today, I was looking into a high school called Good Counsel. I told my mom I would rather go there, and she said it was too expensive. I told her I could get a scholarship, and she said there was no way. She was practically calling me stupid. <laughs> she hates me and doesn't care where I go to school. Just stupid Pilates. So by the way, I went to Pilates. <laughs> and once, after I ripped my contacts, my mother said something very simple like, Jamie, you know, you need to slow down. You need to learn how to listen. However, I internalized this like a protagonist tortured in a young adult novel. And I said to my diary, all the times in my life when I did something wrong or got into trouble seem so weird to me now because I have gotten into trouble some good amount of time over the past two weeks. I ripped my contacts two days ago and my mom made me feel so bad. She said she was ashamed of me and she had just been telling everyone how good I was and how proud she was and now it's all lies. <laughs> I feel like doing something bad. <laughs> but I have already set too many goals that I know I need to achieve. I could have fallen apart when she said that I don't understand. Right now, here I am crying and feeling sorry for myself, hating what I am. It seems like a fake life, a lie. I'm not good. All I am is an ungrateful brat, like my mom says. Okay, again, my mom was never like that. Never. Not even a little bit. She wrote me a letter when I was 17 years old, and it said, from the moment I found out I was pregnant with you, I loved you. The feeling intensified every month until you were born. And then the love I felt for you was overwhelming. I never knew that kind of love. And I know soon you will go away to college and I will miss my best friend. As your grandfather always said, that Jamie is going to be something special. Just wait and see. And guess what? He was right. So I'm happy to say that. Quite a few things have changed since the days that I was writing this diary. I have a job. I have a super cute boyfriend. And after a lot of patience, I finally got a chest. And it's not as important as I thought, so it's not flaunted. But one thing that hasn't changed is that my mom is still my best friend. She's here tonight. And, and even though I haven't become a successful lawyer or the first female president yet. My mom has been there at every turn and I still love her very much. Thank you. I can be the ubermensch okay. presently ensconced in a thick, thick loser stench. Let's use only the future tense. My collective is unconscious though. Yeah, I can't forget when they auctioned us. Brown boy king, red crown glows phosphorus. Young Jung bump sun kill moon wearing toe socks. I've got hymnals for the no knots. On tour and I'm weary of the dinginess. Tag my name in the Codex Seraphinius. 
In Chicago, bleeding in a back alley An olive tree thrives somewhere in the Napa Valley Oh boy And we just heard a melange of performances from the Mortified stage And you can find lots more about Mortified at getmortified.com That's getmortified.com And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. From this picture, ain't none of these people worried about who listens to the listeners. Gladys told me, tell them fuck off if they such a waste of time. I never told her that depressed account was another one of mine.